Valley or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're so glad you can join us for the Bible line. If you are new to this broadcast, for the next hour we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge or issue that you're facing in your life or ministry and you'd like to discuss it or a passage that's challenging, a doctrinal issue, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do our best. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859. You can call us at 843-525-1859. You can dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable, you can go on the air live. We do give preference to live callers. Always happy to receive them that way. And people can call us during the week with a question. Some question comes to mind. And you can call us at that same 843-525-1859 number. And there is a place for you to leave a question in 30 seconds or less. So think it through, maybe write it out. And uh, we're happy to broadcast those. And when your question is answered, uh, you receive an email if we have it. And you'll have the audio link where you can listen to your answer. People also email us here directly at the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Well, with that said, um, let's go ahead, Walter, and we will get started. All right, Pastor Carl, our first question comes from a listener in Savannah who would like to know if there is a good children's Bible parents can read to their younger children. Well, it's a great question. There's two that I recommend. One is uh, called the Picture Bible, and of course, there's a plethora of Bibles under that title, some that are good, some are horrible. I mean, there's all kinds of children's Bibles, some are beautifully illustrated, but not much content or watered down or on occasion. So King James said a child can't comprehend it. Uh, Some are, um, you know, beautifully illustrated, but inaccuracies. I I sometimes remind people I have a Bible in my library. It said printed in Japan, and they have Moses uh, floating down the river laughing. The Bible says he was crying. So you want it to be biblically accurate. So there's one called the Picture Bible um, by W.C. David C. Cook uh, Publications. That's very, very well done. And it has kind of like comic graphics all the way through. And each section is indexed to, quote, unquote, the real Bible, so you're getting basically a summary, but you're giving a three, four, five, seven-year-old an overview of the whole Bible. And as they get older, we would have some of our older children read it to our younger children. That gave them an opportunity to have it reinforced. And then as they got older, sometimes we would then, with the older children, read it from the quote-unquote real Bible and say, what can we pick up that we didn't pick up here and that. So that's very, very well done. There's also one by the same called the Action Bible. It's a little newer Um, the graphics are a little maybe more updated, but both are excellent. Would recommend either one. I do know the, uh, the picture Bible, David C. Cook is also in Spanish and Russian and some other languages. Um, but both, uh, the action Bible and the picture Bible are in English and very, very well done and accurately done. So that's where I would encourage you to start, but thank God that you're thinking in those terms because, You need to teach your children in a concerted way. But just remember, just remember, most of the teaching that you will do will not simply be at night. 
but as you walk in the way, as you lay down, as you rise up, that presupposes that you are spending time alone with God, filling your mind with Scripture. This word must first be in your heart, Moses would say, in teaching the people of Israel and in teaching us what Jesus referred to as the greatest of all commandments when encountered and recorded there in Matthew 22, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to do that, this word must first be in your heart. So I would say that's of principal importance. I'm underscoring this because sometimes parents think, well, if I just read the Bible to the kids at night, I've done my responsibility. That's about 2% of your instruction. Most of it happens throughout the day as God uses you to relate truth to the everyday moments of life. Good question. Let's go on to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, let's go ahead and go to line one. I believe we have Alberto, who is live from Savannah, Georgia. Good morning, Alberto. You're live with Pastor Carl. I think we lost him, Pastor Carl. All right. Well, oh. uh, you there? Well, we'll try again, Alberto. Alberto, are you, you here? Uh, we lost him. Mm-hmm, I'm here. Okay, go ahead, Alberto. We're ready for your question. How are you today? Hello. Can you hear you? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm on the air now. Yes, you're on the air with uh, the Bible line. Go ahead with your question. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. My uh, my question is. Uh, if I, if I accept Christ, right, and I truly believe I'm a, I'm a Christian or a believer, but at the same time I'm being accused by other Christians that you're not a Christian, but at the same time you are attacked or persecuted by the unbeliever as if you were a Christian. So which is so really so which is it that really I am? I'm not a Christian or I am a Christian? Well, it, it's a good question. So what is important? is that you do some personal inventory. So first of all, if you have believers saying that you're not a Christian, at least if you perceive them to be believers, you'd want to ask, well, on what basis would they say this? You know, do they think I have a compromised testimony where they could make this kind of an assessment? And if so, I'd want to hear about it. Um, Maybe they have some doctrinal evidence that they've created that is a litmus test of whether or not you're saved. For instance, in some of our Pentecostal realms, they would say, unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. Therefore, you don't speak in tongues. Therefore, you mustn't be saved. Well, that's, again, a false analysis on their part, and I would just quickly dismiss it, and if anything, try to help them to see the error of their ways. If an unbeliever says you're not a Christian, you'd want to ask why. Maybe he'll say, look, I get all kinds of chatter and hate mail sometimes, Um, not every day, but um, on a regular basis of people who don't like what I say. Maybe I take a stance on a moral issue, and they say, well, Pastor Carl, you're unloving. You speak against adultery. You know, if we love each other, and as long as we're not hurting anyone, what's wrong with us having an extramarital or a premarital relationship, everything. It's against Scripture. Or, Pastor Carl, you're unloving to say that, you know, someone can't change their gender and be in the will of God. Well, again, there's a lot of churches now in America that will affirm that evil. But look, we're we're coming up next month, the whole month of June, all across the United States. You'll go into stores of all kinds, restaurants, etc., waving the pride flag. They're celebrating for the month of June what God calls an abomination. They'd say, well, Pastor Carl, you're unloving, or Alberto, you're unloving for uh, speaking against that. No, you are loving. 
your loving for telling people the truth that the homosexual lifestyle, whatever expression it may take with their alphabet, is wrong, it's evil, and they need to repent and believe on Christ. So what's important, of course, is what God thinks, uh, but you want to, look, sometimes I'll say to a person, I'll say this now, I'll say, well, you may be a Christian, but the New Testament gives you very little assurance that you are. And so I encountered not long ago a couple living together for a number of years, and they both confessed to be born again. And I said, well, look, Paul says, do not be deceived. Uh, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and so forth, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he gives a great word of promise, and such were some of you. God can save anyone. Or Paul says in Ephesians 5, and I said, look, I'm not your judge. You don't stand before me, but I can tell you what the Bible says. For this you know with certainty, I'm reading Ephesians 5, 5, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Again, deception, the nature of it is you typically don't know you're deceived, and that's why you need a plumb line you need to recalibrate your thinking with Scripture, the only book God wrote. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Why? For because of these things. What things? Immorality, impurity, so forth. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, Doing what? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So could a Christian do these things? Yes, that's why he's exhorting a believer to be careful. But he also reminds us lifestyle. Uh, he is reminding us of direction, not necessarily perfection. Our goal is to be sanctified, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. It's called the process of sanctification. So the mark of a believer is they're trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And if someone doesn't have that heart, just typically means they've never been regenerated, born from above. And if they think they're Christians, they have a false assurance. Fair question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next question uh, comes in from a listener who is struggling. She has faith and trust in God, but lately crises seem to be nonstop. What does Pastor Carl think about this? Well, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a little bit of a cough here. Uh, I would say uh, step, back, step back and catch your breath like I need to. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Not if, but when. You encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Why? So that you may be perfect. The word is teleos. It means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he gives this incredible promise. You could certainly apply it outside of the context, but I think sometimes we fail to apply it in the context. But if any of you lacks wisdom, but it's, it's this contrastive word in the Greek text connecting to what he just said in verses 2 through 4. In other words, what you're saying is you lack a certain degree of wisdom. And you're going through all these trials and you're trying to assess it. 
And so God is saying, if you lack wisdom, you need to drop on your knees, basically, go to the Lord, ask of God who gives to all generously without a reproach, and it will be given to him, and you ask in faith without doubting. In other words, you say, Heavenly Father, I, I don't understand why there is this plethora of trials that have come upon my life. I'm trying to assess it. I'm trying to understand it. So I'm coming to you as my Father, and every good and perfect gift comes from above, and you are sovereign. Your providence extends to every detail of my life. You go in front of me and behind me, even before there's a word on my tongue, you know everything. And so, Father, in faith, I trust you to reveal what you are trying to show me. And look, sometimes it has nothing to do with, like, you're living in sin. Certainly, there is various aspects of discipline. Sometimes there is discipline that's corrective in nature, and we have basically reaped the oats that we've sown. And so there's the law of sowing and reaping. Do not be mocked. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that he shall reap. Um, and so that's a consideration. And so sometimes the Lord brings divine discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You say, I thought he loved everyone. Well, he does in a broad sense, but while I love the next door neighbor's children, I never love them like I love my kids and my grandkids. Why? Because they're my own. I have a special affinity for them. And while God loves the world, the believers are called beloved, beloved those who are beloved of God. It's both a noun and a verb in Scripture. God has a special affection on those who are his, and so sometimes he brings divine discipline. Look, sometimes there's discipline on the life, and you're doing everything right, just like you disciplined, you trained your children maybe to work hard, to know how to sweat, to know how to uh, take a job and see it all the way through without quitting. That involves discipline. That involves instruction, training your children how to make and use money. That involves discipline. That involves instruction. They're not doing anything wrong. You're just trying to move them further down the continuum of life so that they can represent the Lord Jesus Christ well. And that's God's goal many times. And so that's why he says, consider a joy. That's a choice you make. Look, you can be going through trials in your life, you know, this is so hard what I have to do. And, you know, I just wish I had another alternative and whine and complain. Or you can choose to be joyous in the midst of your circumstances. That's a decision you make. He doesn't say feel it all joy. Consider it. It's a calculated decision when you come into various multicolored trials. Why? Because we know that God has a purpose in them to shape us and to produce endurance. And he says, and let endurance. In other words, if you don't let this trial have its perfect result, then God may have to repeat it over and over and over again. And so God wants to train us through it and mature us through it. So let God have his way through whatever struggle, whatever it is that seems to bring you heartache and to produce Christ-likeness in your life. Anyway, I hope that helps get you started. You might want to listen. Go to If you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, download it on your phone. Go to the App Store. Just type in, search the scriptures, brogy or whatever. It should come up. It's kind of a triangular app in honor of the Holy Trinity. And uh, go ahead and download that app and type in the book of James and listen to some of the introductory sermons and messages in the book of James. In fact, James is really a book that deals all the way through with trials. And that might be a great book for you to study. And so there's quite an extensive uh, 
lineage of sermons there that I think you might find helpful. All right, let's move forward. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, we'll go back to the lines. Pastor Carl, I believe we have Scott. Good morning, Scott. You're alive with Pastor Carl. Go ahead, Scott. Good morning. Glad to have you. Yeah, just turn your radio down. You'll be confused otherwise. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Brogy. Um, my name is Scott Winfield. I just graduated high school, and I'm looking into different Christian colleges. I live in New Jersey currently, and I was wondering if you had any suggestions. Yeah, um, it's it's really a, a challenging question, Scott, and I appreciate it so much that you'd call and you think on those terms. Uh, you know, there's pros and cons to going to a Christian college. Some of the cons is that more and more of these Christian colleges are becoming diluted. And so you had once great schools, say, like Wheaton College, and Wheaton College is, you know, on the verge of apostasy. Now, that would make some Wheaton graduates angry for me to even make that statement. But in the 1980s and 90s, when I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, where a number of my professors had graduated from Wheaton, they were so discouraged by the direction that it's taken. And so it's in deep darkness right now. There's a lot of LGBTQIA woke theology that has come into the student body, and so there are some that you just need to run from. Uh, Liberty is still a good school. They obviously had some huge leadership problems with uh, one of the Falwell boys, Jonathan, who um, was running the helm there, living a double lifestyle, uh, and because of his lack of walking closely with the Lord, um, the school took some hits, but the professors, they wanted him to be gone. He's gone now. They're back on track. It's certainly expensive for someone who's out of state. And so one of the questions I would ask you is like, one, why do you want to go to college? If, if your goal is say, well, because I, I want to go to a Christian college because I, I want to become, you know, a pastor or go into the ministry, then I might step back and say, well, if you're going to go into the pastor, you're going to have to sharpen your sword a lot more beyond a four-year Christian school, uh, simply because um, you have um, greater needs than a four-year degree could provide. And in light of that, then I would say go through college the cheapest way that you can, which typically for most students is in-state, because there are always in-state tuition benefits that you don't get. Uh, Even like USC, Columbia, it goes up about four or five times if you're an out-of-state student. If you go to UNC Chapel Hill, which is very woke, uh, they're fighting right now. My own son, who's trying to uh, require a three-hour course. He, he actually wrote the legislation for North Carolina, uh, a three-hour course, so that the students would learn the Declaration of in- Independence, the Constitution of the United States, the Emancipation Proclamation, and a letter from Dr. King from a Birmingham jail. Three-hour course, 2.5% of the whole curriculum, and they're fighting tooth and nail. It's made it into Fox News and a number of uh, why they're woke. But if you go to UNC Chapel Hill, it goes up about 10 times if you're out of state. So again, I would ask, well, what's my goal? What do I really want to accomplish? Because I don't think it's it's wise 
to come out of college with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of debt. I went to Boston College. It's right now $72,000 a year. Now, if you ask me, is that good value? I'd say it's horrendous. I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Uh, that's a huge price to pay. And so I typically tell people, if you're going to spend money, spend it on the graduate degree. Go for a 4.0 in the undergraduate degree. That puts you in a position for the graduate degree to potentially get huge scholarships. I told my sons that and my daughter. I said, look, if you want to go into higher education, shoot for the 4.0. And they all did. And they got pretty close. Um one a near 3.99, another 3.98, and another 3.86. And, and that put them in a position for huge scholarships. And again, that really radically reduces the cost. So like if you go into business and you get an undergraduate degree at, at whatever school is there in New Jersey, uh, it's not worth much anymore unless you go on and say get an MBA somewhere. And typically to get an MBA, you have to have two years of work experience. Typically, if the school is worth its moxie. I know there's all these online schools and so forth, but they're usually not recognized. And while you think you've saved a lot of money, when you go for a, a job with a credible organization, they, they don't look at them very highly. So I'd ask, what do I want to do? Um, look, I spoke to someone recently and he said, I don't want to go to college and come out with $50,000 worth of debt. I want to become a welder. And I said, man, that's fantastic. Uh, what a skill. In fact, there's a shortage of welders in America. Uh, they were having one Midwestern state starting pay $70,000 a year if you will come and weld for our company. Uh, so sometimes a technical skill will go a long way. It depends what God's gifted you to do, what you want to do. Um, so I would definitely consider that. I would consider Bob Jones. Now, Bob Jones was typically, historically, not a good school that I could even recommend. I really couldn't. Um, they were so wrought over in legalism and the negative side of, of what we would call fundamentalism. I would call myself a fundamentalist in that I believe in the non-negotiables of the faith, but the term came to take on a different perception where they had degrees of separation uh, on issues that were non-essential to salvation. And if you didn't hold to this degree of separation, you were probably lost. Like you couldn't get saved apart from the King James Bible and just all kinds of nonsense. They've radically changed. They're not the same school. Do they have some high standards? Yes. And they'll tell their, you, you know, their college students, if you, if you want to come here, great. But if you don't want to go to church on Sunday, we're not the school for you. We want you to be involved in a local assembly. So they do have some standards. You want to come to college, great. You want to drink, well, that's your choice, but we're not the school for you. So they do have some high Christian standards, but a lot of the legalism has been eradicated, and they are fundamentally a much, much different school. Lay all that aside. Um, you know, that's where I might start. Cedarville has had a good reputation, but... You know, I'm hearing different reports, so I can't tell you definitively where I can say, hey, go to Cedarville. Um, but they have had a good history. But, uh, again, think through the whole cost system. Don't come out of college. Like, if you go to Liberty, I don't know what it is right now. Maybe Walter can look it up for us, uh, Google how much Liberty is a year. But it's really expensive. 
And unless you get, you know, some, unless you have deep pockets, I don't think it's worth coming out of college with a lot of debt. In fact, I tell young people, come out of college debt-free if at all possible. And so if that means getting uh, some two-year, I'd go to a local two-year college where you can live at home and then transfer to a four-year school and you can get all your core curriculum classes done, that would be great. How much is it right now? Uh, Right now, the average cost, Pastor Carl, is $29,382 a year. That's after aid. That's assuming you get aid. Average cost before aid is $42,000 a year. But let's just assume you get all the grants and scholarships that everybody hopes for. That's thirty k a year before your travel costs. That never includes books. Um, so you still have books plus other student fees. But basically thirty a year. So that's $120,000 in college debt to go to Liberty University. Mm. <coughs> that's steep. So give it some careful thought. Anyway, I appreciate the call. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. I believe we have Keith, who is live with us from Kentucky on line one. Good morning, Keith. You are live with Pastor Carl. Keith? I think we lost him, Pastor Carl. All right, Keith, you can come back to us if you want. Let's go to the next uh, All right. question. Our next question comes from Bob out of Okatee. He is concerned about many people calling themselves prophets. Some, for example, address issues like Bitcoin, and they'll even Google something and show that it is something prophesied for the end times. They will point this to listeners to passages like Acts chapter 2.17 and declare themselves to be part of this outpouring of the Spirit in the last days? Thoughts? Well, it's a good question, and a lot depends by definition what you mean by, quote-unquote, a prophet. When uh, Peter stands up on Pentecost, uh, they see a miracle. They see all these Galileans speaking 15 different glossolalia languages and not just languages, dialectos, dialects within the language, and they say, this is incredible. This is a miracle. And Peter says, listen, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. Now let's define last days. According to Peter, the last days were in place. The last days had begun. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews makes a very similar statement He said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. So the writer of the Hebrews assumed you were in the last days. That's what Peter is assuming. So right off, some of these people are standing up and saying, well, we're in the last days. Therefore, you know, I've got this gift when in reality we've been in the last days since the Lord came and certainly since Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That just happened. They just witnessed it. Men and women of the 120 came out, and they were speaking, in essence, words of prophecy. How so? Well, because they were speaking in languages that they had not learned, and they were speaking direct revelation from God as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, they watched this. They saw this, and Peter said this is a fulfillment of what God had said. And Peter actually takes the passage of Joel, and he walks you through all the way 
until the second coming of Christ, when the moon will be turned blood red and so on and so forth, the sun will be darkened. That's at the second coming. So Peter acknowledges the last days begins during this time frame and comes all the way until the return of Jesus from heaven. Now, with that said, uh, the word prophet uh, is a Greek word that means to speak forth, and it could be used prophetically of future things, or it could be used of someone who spoke of truths that were already revealed. So in terms of a uh, foretelling dimension, certainly uh, there is no gift of prophecy because then you would be in violation of the last book of the Bible, which, by the way, chronologically is the last um, book to have been written. So it's not just the last book in your English Bible, but it's the last book that God ever wrote. And he said, and I testify... Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. And so I would just say that it's false prophets who come up with new information. Now, it's not, you know, rocket science to say, well, okay, Bitcoin or maybe more likely, um, you know, digital, digitalized money. Uh, you have central bank digital money. Uh, it could certainly be used by the Antichrist as a control factor where you can't buy it and sell anything unless it's done digitally. And certainly there's 114 countries right now examining this, even the United States, through a direct executive order from our president. And if we ever go to that, you have a total control factor because uh, you can't buy or sell anything except through the government's acknowledgement. In other words, you go into the grocery store and they direct the withdrawal from your account. Um, you have a yard sale and someone pays you $50. It's, it's worthless at that point because cash is useless. Everything is done digitally. And so if someone pays you $50, they have to pay you through a digital transfer. And so the government sees every dollar that comes in, every dollar that goes out. They'll argue, well, this will keep, you know, money from being laundered. It will keep, you know, drug sales down, illegal drug sales, because we can see everything that happens. Well, there's a way to get around just about everything on the internet, but it will certainly close that gap some, but it will also control you. Oh, you don't like the transgender lifestyle? Sorry, uh, we're shutting down your account. You say, that's crazy. Look, there were people in Canada under the current prime minister who they just gave money to help some of the truckers who were in a protest, and they shut down their accounts. These things indeed could happen in many ways. But if you meet someone who says, hey, I've got this word from God, and you should run in the opposite direction because the canon of Scripture is closed. And so God now uses his printed word. And if someone gives a word of prophecy, if it's beyond Scripture— then you need to step back and say, well, look, you don't know that. Now, it might be an application of maybe something that could take place. And so I just gave you the illustration with digital money. The only difference is the Antichrist would add a prefix to it that you would agree to. You won't be tricked into it. And, you know, for your digital account to function with the number 666 written on your hand or your forehead. So you could see how the control factor could certainly flesh itself out. But you can't say, well, God gave me this word from heaven. Someone called last week and said, well, I like the preacher until the end of the service. And he says, well, God spoke to me today and there's someone out here who has back pain. 
look, probably everyone somewhere in every congregation has back pain. Someone here is sick and, you know, God's giving me this word. That's dangerous stuff. That's egotistical driven Christianity of someone who's trying to make himself or herself look like some big shot, and you should run a thousand miles in the opposite direction and find a church that sticks to the book. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line. I believe we found Keith, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Keith. You're live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, uh, Pastor Carl. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm calling from Kentucky. Uh, but question on the bride of Christ. I know that we are the bride of Christ, that we the body of Christ are the bride of Christ. But I believe in Revelation it speaks of Jerusalem also being the bride of Christ. Yes. You could elaborate on that for me? Yeah, no, that's a great question. In fact, um, I would encourage you, if you go, because I think um, this brother from Kentucky is using our Search the Scriptures app, the only challenge is, unless you're aware of a sermon I'm preaching on Sunday morning, uh, you may not know to look for it on Search the Scriptures. But right now, if you go to communitybiblechurch.us and on the homepage, there's a green box called God's Prophetic Schedule. And if you click on that, 30 messages will come up. And so if you go to the last two messages that I preached on the New Heaven— I called one Our Father's House, and the other I called a Tour of Heaven. I addressed this subject. But uh, certainly since the Bride of Christ will be in the New Jerusalem, and since Old Testament believers, which are considered the Bride of Yahweh, so they're not part of the church. Uh, to be a part of the church, you have to be in Christ. Someone asked me recently, uh, it was a great question, uh, could Old Testament saints be a part of the Bride of Christ? And I say, well, no, because the Bride of Christ is defined in the New Testament are people who are in Christ, and so they die before Pentecost. And what is it that places us in Christ? It's He's God, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who unites us into a single body. But God described Israel as his bride in the Old Testament, and he describes the church under the New Covenant as his bride. And so it's quite appropriate to describe the city as the bride city um, because it's the place where God's people will live. And, of course, in the, in the future, uh, we will be one family of Old Testament believers and all church saints and all tribulation saints and even those who believe during the time of the millennial reign of the Messiah. And again, that city is just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth. And I, again, I, I covered this in those two messages, but right after the great white throne judgment in Revelation 21, 11 to 15, um, chapter 21 opens, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And so the current heaven and earth will be gone someday. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Peter describes uh, this time where the Lord will literally take the current earth that has been tainted by sin as the whole universe, even the heavens, uh, where Satan has had free reign in the heavenly realms. Um, that will all be destroyed. Satan by this time is in the lake of fire with all unbelievers, and God creates a very much new heaven, new earth. It's not a fix-up of the old one. It's brand new. And then he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So he describes the city like a bride. It's adorned. It's the Greek word cosmeo. We get our word cosmetics from it. A bride on her wedding day will typically do everything in her power to make herself just as beautiful as possible for when she comes down that aisle. Well, God is going to take this city and he's going to make it absolutely beautiful. And he says he'll make all things new. And so it's going to be a magnificent place. It's the place where our loved ones are right now. So the term uh, New Jerusalem applies to my father's house. It applies to a current day paradise in deference to Old Testament paradise and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's the bride city for the bride, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, tribulation believers, millennial believers. Uh, and again, it's just the capital city that will sit in a on a brand new earth coming down through a brand new heavens above. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next question comes from Faye out of Springfield. She was talking to a friend who is a Sunday school teacher. This friend says when unbelievers ask this person a spiritual question, this person tells them to look in the Bible. Faye is concerned that this person should help walk those asking the question through what God's Word is saying. And Faye gives 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 as supporting Scripture. Okay, yeah, fair enough. So a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. So when um, someone asks a Sunday school teacher, especially an unbeliever, a question, certainly you want to answer it from the Bible because, again, the Word of God is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so the questions young people especially and even adults are asking are so different today from what people were asking even 10 years ago. They're asking about moral issues. Is this really wrong? Is this really right? And how are we to understand this and perceive this? And so you go to the scripture, but ultimately you want to direct them to the plan of salvation. It's not that an unbeliever can't understand scripture, but he can understand the things that are pertaining to his conversion. And so they ask you a question about adultery or transgenderism or drunkenness. Well, you go to the scripture and the Spirit of God uses that. Remember, the function of the law is like a school teacher, Galatians says, to lead us to faith in Christ. And so you hold up God's moral standard, and that brings conviction. What are we doing today? We're lowering and even changing God's moral standard. So now everything's okay, and people don't have a need for a Savior. But you don't stop there, and you don't certainly say, just look in the Bible. I mean, look, the average uh, unbeliever... You say, well, you know, why don't you examine Ephesians 5? And they might say, is that, what part of the Bible that is that in? They, they have no idea. They don't know if it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So if you're going to open the Word, open it up for them, direct them to the text, but ultimately remind yourself, this person, that they need to know Christ as their Savior. Remember, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you can't really see, comprehend, embrace spiritual truth because a natural man is referenced here, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't appraise them and absorb them. 
uh, until he's born again. And so he'll say a few verses later, we who are spiritual comprehend all things. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. We have a new capacity to see and understand truth that the unbeliever does not have. It doesn't mean we understand everything, but we have a new capacity to understand everything because we're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has given us a new perspective on life and things begin to make sense when we go to the scripture. So I think your friend is missing some great opportunities. And if they have unbelievers asking them, they should say, well, you know, I would love to sit down with you and just share some things with you that I think would be really helpful. And I'd walk them through the plan of salvation. And if they don't know how to do that, call, search the scriptures, get our booklet, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And it just, you can almost just sit down and read the booklet. Look, most folks, most unbelievers are like Philip when he encounters the eunuch in Acts 8. He's actually reading the Bible. He's reading a portion of scripture that contains the whole plan of salvation. And remember, for nearly a decade, all the early church had was the Old Testament scripture. So when they met on the Lord's Day, they didn't say, well, let's go to Ephesians 4 today and find out what God says about Ephesians hadn't been written yet. So what did they do when they gathered? They poured over the Old Testament scriptures, and that was beautiful because that gave people an opportunity to understand and to see how Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And then the New Testament books began to be ticked off one by one by one with the Revelation being the last book being written. But he's reading Isaiah 53 providentially. It's a big scroll and he happens to be in that section of the scroll, and it describes like an eyewitness 700 years before it happens what Messiah is going to do. And he says to Philip, well, how can I understand? Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And typically that's what the average unsaved person needs, some explanation. And today we live in a Day where people have very, very little Bible knowledge. When I went into the ministry, we did what we call back then an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. I just quoted from Acts 2. He stands up to these thousands of Jewish people and he says, well, this is what Joel the prophet says. Today, people say, who's Joel? What is a prophet? They don't even know. That was an Acts 2 presentation. You could say, for God so loved the world, and the unbeliever could almost quote it with you, though he didn't know what it meant. Today, we need what we call an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, where it kind of takes you from the beginning, Genesis, and walks you through to the end. And so, would you like to know God is your friend? That booklet, we'll give it to you for free. I'll tell people, just pay for the shipping, and we'll give you, you know, 50 to 100 at a time. We want you to have a little skin in the game. I don't want to send you 100 booklets because they cost us, you know, they, you know some money, Um I forgot what we pay, like 50 cents a booklet or whatever it is. So I don't want to just waste God's money because it's through the faithful foundation partners that these are provided. But still, I want to give them to you if you'll use them. And if you just sit down and read through and every once in a while come up for air and say, does that make sense? Do you have a question? You say, what if he asked me a question I don't know the answer to? And maybe that's the genesis of this uh, fellow Sunday school teacher you're dealing with oh, well, just find it in the Bible. Maybe they're afraid that they're going to be asked a question they don't know the answer to. That's okay. You can just say, I don't know the answer. I hope you know there's nothing new under the sun that you can find the answer and come back. But again, just read through the booklet. 
the commentary is kind of given explaining the meaning of the verses, and you will be surprised. I say to anyone listening, you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last two or three years, probably what you're doing is not working. And so try this. It's not the only way, but it is a simple way to present the plan of salvation. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Jack out of Charleston, South Carolina. He writes, Some witnesses for Christ are one-trick ponies. Their entire message is repent, resist the devil, he is a liar. They are long on condemning the devil and short on glorifying God and mentoring new believers. Sometimes they are speaking to backsliding Christians whose continuing sins provide a foothold for the devil. Their carnal weaknesses. We need witnesses for Christ that are Jeremiah's to to point out our failures, but also Barnabas's to equip and encourage us to resist the devil. There is more to the gospel than bringing the unsaved or backsliders to repentance. How do we enhance the sanctification process in milk drinkers? Well, let me just define some terms. There's not more to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. I delivered to you as a first importance the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, defines it as the death, burial, and the resurrection. Um, There's more to growing in Christ after someone receives the Lord, but there's not more to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what do you do with a new believer? You begin to encourage him to take steps of obedience. What's one of the first steps? Well, to be baptized. Is baptism part of the gospel? No. Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He separated baptism from the gospel. So again, there's conversion, but then there's spiritual growth. And so a church, an individual, if you're involved in the Great Commission, should be engaged not just in evangelism, calling people to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, but then when they make that decision to help them to grow. Uh, At Community Bible Church, we have a class called the Discovery Class. It's basically 45 weeks long. Sometimes it takes longer based on the questions that people ask, because they're free to ask the questions that they have on their heart. And it has three groups of people in it, new believers, people who've been saved sometimes for a few decades, but they stayed babes in Christ. No one ever discipled them. And then some mature believers who want to know how to disciple someone else. Um, 21 of those weeks right now are online. Online at searchthescriptures.org, if you type in basic discipleship, those handouts are available. People ask me, can I use them for my church? Of course you can. Just don't remove any of the copyrights and leave them just as they are in full because I don't want someone to have some stilted presentation, say, of eternal security. I want them to have all the pages that deal with it. I want them to have a full-blown view on prayer, which is a 31-page handout. I want them to have a full-blown view on uh, the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Trinity, which I think is 33 pages. So again, these take weeks to go through, but what are you doing? You're grounding the new believer in the basics of the faith. Can I do that as a pastor every single week? If someone becomes a Christian with me this week, you know, some of their first primary needs are, you know, baptism and understanding their security in Christ and how to deal with sin. Well, I suppose I could, but what happens if someone receives Christ the next week and the next week? You know, I can't, I have to teach the whole counsel of God. So we have a vehicle 
in which to accomplish that at CBC, and that we make available. And there's a lot of churches that are using the material. We're more than happy. So there's a kind of a teacher's edition, and there's a student edition. So if you've never called for the material, we'll send you the student edition. You can listen to the messages. So like on Eternal Security, I think there's four messages you can listen to to fill in the notes. Um, and then you can go on and you can teach it. And we'll, we'll, we want to equip you in that way. So it, it's a fair statement. You know, we need, we need people like Barnabas. Barnabas, um, son of encouragement. Bar means son of. The, the Greek word means son of encouragement. His name was not actually that. That was kind of a, a nickname the apostles gave him because he was an encouraging person to be around. And he becomes a good model in that while he no doubt had the gift of encouragement, and I have a whole sermon just on Barnabas, uh, while he had the gift of encouragement, we're all called to encourage one another, just like some have the gift of teaching, but we're all called at least to progress enough where we can teach basic truths even if we don't have that spiritual gift. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, our next question comes from Dawson out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He writes, I was wondering what to say to someone who thinks people can have a second chance after the rapture. Thank you, Pastor Carl. Well, um, you know, some people don't always agree with this, but I think the burden of proof is on them to show otherwise. And so in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the apostle Paul is speaking about a coming day. Uh, some of the believers were a little bit confused. Uh, they were under intense persecution. They thought maybe the day of the Lord had come. The day of the Lord is not the rapture. It's a time frame that mimics a biblical day. It's a thousand plus years long. There's a dark side to it. We call it the great tribulation. And there's a bright side to it. We call it the millennial reign. And then there's a final dark side to it, when at the end of the millennial reign of Messiah, those born during the tribulation, I mean, during the millennial reign through the bodies of tribulation saints who walk into the millennial reign in their natural body, unlike us who will be in resurrection bodies, they'll be able to have children and grandchildren, and they'll have to make a decision. Some of those will not decide for Christ, and it gets dark again, and then it becomes bright for all of eternity. So we're not in that day. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What does he do? He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember while I was with you, I was telling you these things? You haven't missed the rapture. Your persecution may be intense. God is going to fix that day, fix that someday. He'll give relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will, you know, come back from heaven and he'll deal out retribution to those who don't know God. But you're not in the tribulation. If you're in the tribulation, you'd see the Antichrist. If you're in the tribulation, you'd see the apostasy of all apostasies. It's the articular use here, the apostasy. So you didn't miss the rapture. You didn't misunderstand me. The rapture is still in front of you. And these things are going to happen. And then he goes on to say that then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And Revelation illustrates that at the um, end of, uh, at the second coming, God immediately slays the Antichrist and his cohort, the false prophet. 
they become the first two people ever to become uh, residents in the lake of fire. Today, people are in a place called Hades. It's kind of a current hell. But the ultimate hell is the lake of fire. So the Lord will slay them with the breath of his mouth. There will be kind of a reverse rapture. You know, the dead in Christ come out of the grave and we're given new bodies. They'll be dead, but then translated in a moment in a resurrection body suited for hell. And anyway, um, this one who's coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. That's what the Antichrist does. He's empowered by the evil one. He comes with signs and miracles with all the deception of wickedness. For who? For those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason. For what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So there's an assumption they have clearly heard the truth of the gospel. Now, there's a lot of people who go to churches, who have not clearly heard the gospel, and they will have an opportunity potentially to receive Jesus during the tribulation. But we're talking about people who, with clarity and power, heard the gospel, and they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, because of their disobedience, God will descend upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged with those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So for people who are looking for a second chance after the rapture, who have heard the gospel, and I'm assuming you're speaking to a friend and you're sharing the gospel, you should say there won't be a second chance. You won't be able to say, well, I guess what you said is true. The rapture has happened, and I'll now receive Jesus as Lord. No, you'll believe what's false. It will be a judgment of God. And by the way, that judgment, even in some respects, unfolds today. Uh, Jesus said, many miracles have been done in your midst, John 12. Um, the light that you've received should have been an, enough, but because they would not believe, Jesus goes on in John 12 to say they could not believe. Why? Because God hardened their heart. God blinded their eyes. It's a judicial judgment. No one draws himself to the Lord. God draws you to the Lord. And if you reject Jesus and you reject that drawing, you're playing Russian roulette with your soul, not to mention you don't have a promise that you'll be alive tomorrow. I did a funeral last week for a brother who went to work, as he did every morning, but never made it. Look, you don't have the promise of tomorrow. You could be dead before this day is over. Christ could come back and it would be forever too late. So today is a day of salvation. If you don't know what that means, go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on, would you like to know God as your friend? If you're not 100% certain, if you're 99% sure, you may be 100% lost. You want to get this settled. Anyway, thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. May you walk with Jesus Christ and glorify him. And if you don't have a place to go this Sunday, come to Community Bible Church as we look through the entire prophetic schedule. The final sermon, having done 30 on the prophetic schedule, the final sermon this Sunday where we'll go through the entire prophetic schedule, beginning with the church age, all the way through the new heaven and the new earth. The local-